This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, would you come, come Holy Spirit, come teach our souls to love your truth. Teach us, Father, to see Jesus, to know you. Would you be glorified in this place? Would you help us to remember your truth and to hear your good news again? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This week, I read and did a little more research for someone I'd heard about a while ago named Sophie Scholl. So Sophie Scholl, and I don't know if I'm even pronouncing her name correctly, but she lived in Germany. She was German. And she lived in Germany during the Nazi regime. She was a young college student. And she and her brother Hans gathered a secret group of friends uh, and one professor, and they formed um, an underground group called the White Rose. And they began a nonviolent resistance of, um, to Hitler. They did things like they would um, illegally distribute flyers denouncing Hitler's actions. They would Um, stand on high places in the wind and let leaflets blow out about what was actually happening in the Nazi regime. They they would do secret mailings from all over the country to um, people to inform them what was happening and to plead with people to start a grassroots movement to rise up against the evil that they saw around them. And... um, Sophie Scholl and her brother were only in their early 20s. She was 21 when she started, and they were remarkably brave, unbelievably brave. And they did all of this that they did because they were Christians. They so strongly believed that Christians, that the church must take a stand against the evil that they were witnessing around them in their country. Sophie and her brother were discovered by the Gestapo, And they were put on trial with their punishment to be death by execution. And while she was awaiting trial, she wrote what's become one of my favorite quotes. She said, I shall cling to the rope God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even if my numb hands can no longer feel it. Sophie Scholl found her citizenship in heaven. And I want to talk today about this curious phrase, our citizenship is in heaven. And I'm going to outline three things that that might mean for us. It means more than these three things, but here are some. So, one, citizens of heaven practice heaven. As citizens of heaven, we take up the civics, if you will, the civics, the practices of heaven. 
when I speak about discipleship and um, Christian formation and various places when I travel, I point out that citizenship, citizenship in a nation state, always involves practices. And I ask people to just name some practices of being citizens of the United States. And people name different things. Often people say voting, um, saying the pledge. Um, sometimes people say buying things like Starbucks and um, McDonald's. Those come up. Um, lawmaking or law, law obeying. Um, jury duty. There are some practices we like more than other practices. Um, Baseball, people will bring up different things that sort of are part of the practices of citizenship. Uh, one of the interesting things for me as someone who kind of nerds out on liturgy and thinking about liturgy was watching the, um, the controversy around Colin Kaepernick when he and um, everything involving the national anthem, uh, kneeling at the national anthem. And what was interesting to me there is that... Um, he didn't, there was no speech. He didn't say anything to offend people. It was, it, he um, challenged a national liturgy. He challenged what we consider a ritual practice of citizenship, and he inverted it to make a kind of different statement. So he, um, in that, we can sort of see we have these cultural liturgies, and they mean something to us. They signify something. They form us in a certain way. Spiritual formation, Christian discipleship, is how we learn the practices of being citizens of heaven, the civics of the kingdom of God. We will not be different from the world if we have different beliefs than the world, but all the same practices. We use our time and our money and our bodies and our relationships differently in order to be transformed into Christ's glorious body. It's not simply by standing each week and saying the creed that teaches us what it means to be a citizen of heaven, although that is such a good practice. But it's not simply what we say in the creed that teaches us the practices of citizenship in heaven, but how we embody our faith in our everyday life, in our work, and our friendships, and our families. And I need to say here, just to, like as a caveat, that when Paul says we are citizens of heaven, he doesn't mean a place like in the sky somewhere, like a place that we go to when we die. Um, he means the dimension of God's perfect worship. We are citizens of that place where God is perfectly worshipped. We're the citizens of true reality. He means the kingdom of God, which will one day be established permanently on earth when Jesus returns. And this is why he says we are awaiting a savior, awaiting a savior who by the power that enables him to bring, I love this, everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. So he doesn't mean that, you know, this world doesn't matter because one day we'll have pie in the sky. Although, as I told the nine, I really do think there will be pie in heaven. Um, 
but he is saying, practice the civics of heaven now. Practice the liturgies and the rituals of citizenship in the kingdom of God. Practice heaven. That's what we do as Christians. We practice heaven. Sophie Scholl's citizenship in heaven didn't pull her out of the world. It didn't make her apathetic to the evil around her or to not notice the evil around her, but it made her different in the world. She realized that her true citizenship wasn't Germany, but was the kingdom of God. And that allowed her to resist and to witness against the liturgies and rituals and commitments that she saw in her nation. As citizens of heaven, we walk through our world differently. We approach our ordinary lives sacramentally. Not that everything is a sacrament, but that we, we take this stuff of earth, the stuff of our daily life, as the material of heaven. It's part of our transformation. And with Sophie and Hans Scholl, that's an extreme example, I know, that of, of resisting the liturgies around them even unto death. But she didn't start there. That wasn't the first practice of her discipleship. She, in order to get there, she entered countless small practices, ordinary practices of the Christian life that formed her into the kind of person that could resist evil. And we also take up ordinary practices in our life. We take up these small daily practices of heaven and I don't mean that we just think about our days differently or believe differently than our neighbors. I mean we take up practices of gathered worship, doing this together. We take up practices of discipleship that teach us to enter everything we do, work and sleep and the way we relate to friends and family, our bodies, everything we do as the formative practices that those things truly and actually are. Those things form us. You are being formed, discipled even, I'm going to use that word, by practices. Whether you know it or not, you are shaped into a way of being in the world by consumerism or nationalism and by all kinds of forces in our culture. We all are. Um, some of you know the story because I may have mentioned it and it's in my book also, but a few years ago for Lent... Um, I noticed right before Lent that um, I, was, I was waking up every day to my smartphone. It was the first thing I saw in the morning. Um, before the sun, before my husband, I'd take my smartphone and I would scroll through and get news and information and entertainment. Um, and so for Lent, I instead banished my smartphone from my room and I would just sit for, I would make the bed which I had never done before, and I would sit um, for a few minutes in silence um, and just practice silence and just be still. And I would pray, and then I would, I would just sit. Um, so I want to say, I didn't begin the day before this Lent 
of waking up and saying, first thing, I believe in Steve Jobs, maker of heaven and earth. And I didn't start my day by saying the chief end of man is to enjoy technology forever. I didn't recite a creed, but the practice, the habit, was shaping me towards a certain end, towards entertainment, towards every minute being distracted, towards being deeply resistant to any kind of stillness or silence. So taking up this change was a very small change. It didn't radically change my life. I didn't move to Tibet because of it. I didn't start a bed-making nonprofit. Um, but it allowed me in this very subtle way to practice a different kind of kingdom in a very small way, to take this tiny practice of silence and prayer that allowed me to hold to the rope God had thrown me in Jesus Christ, whether I felt it or not. So citizens of heaven practice heaven in big and small ways. Second, citizens of heaven are homesick. We're homesick for the place of our citizenship. Themes of exile in Scripture run through the whole story of Scripture. In fact, the whole big story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation can be seen from beginning to end as a story of exile and rescue from exile. The author, Jen Pollock-Michelle, calls the Bible itself a home story, a story of home, origin, the Eastern father in the early church called sin itself exile. He said, and this is a quote, when your soul is troubled by sin, you are taken into Babylon. Adam was indeed in paradise, but the serpent caused his captivity and brought it about that he was expelled from Jerusalem or paradise and entered into this place of tears. This place of tears. All of humanity in the fall, in our state of sin, is in exile. All of us. And we in the church, in particular, are called people who live, as 1 Peter says, as sojourners and exiles. We are not people who are ever quite at home in the world. I've uh, never lived for more than a few months in a different country. Um, but I have a little taste of this because I'm from Texas, and so I call myself a Texile because I'm an exile from Texas. Um, and I get homesick. I miss the things of home. I miss breakfast tacos, and I miss tortillas. And I know you think you have tortillas here, but it's you don't. Um, and I miss my family. I miss my people. And if we are to be Christians, even if you were born and raised from Pit in Pittsburgh, even if you live in the same place you grew up, you need to get used to feeling homesick. You need to get used to the feeling of living and longing. Because this is not our true home. And living and longing is not comfortable. It's painful. It's full of tension. It's full of grief. 
Our culture tells us that we need to be perfectly fulfilled right now. And that if we're not, something's wrong. I just read a book that's a New York Times bestseller that um, in a nutshell claims that if you aren't perfectly sexually fulfilled, if you aren't sexually flourishing, then um, you need to break free from the strictures of Christian morality or whatever your hang-ups are to pursue perfect sexual fulfillment. And that God himself wants that for you. And maybe, maybe it's not sex, but maybe in other ways in our culture, we're told if you are not perfectly fulfilled, you can buy something to fix that. You can make a little more money, and you will be. Or if you're not completely fulfilled, you can find a romantic relationship that will fulfill you. There's entire industries based on this myth. Rom-coms, largely, you find fulfillment in this romantic relationship at the end. But I want to say, if you aren't fulfilled this morning, if you are grieving or broken, if there are places in your life where you sense deep and real unmet desires, when you're experiencing a lack and a restlessness and a need, maybe you aren't doing anything wrong. Maybe you are homesick for your true home. In our vulnerability and pain, in the vulnerability and pain of unfulfillment, we cling to to the rope that God has thrown us in Jesus Christ, even if our numb hands can no longer feel it. Maybe when you look and see all that's wrong with the world and with ourselves, and you feel heartbroken over that, and it is right to feel heartbroken over that, maybe in that place we are practicing the longing of exiles. We are practicing remembering that we aren't home yet. Which brings me to my third point. Our gospel passage this morning in Luke 13. I love how N.T. Wright translates this passage. So I'm going to read his translation just for a bit. He says, um, Master, somebody said to Jesus, will there only be a few that are saved? Jesus replies, verse 24, Struggle hard, struggle hard to get in the narrow gate. So as citizens of heaven, we practice heaven. We are homesick for the place of our citizenship. And lastly, as citizens of heaven, we struggle. We struggle. Jesus here is not saying that his mercy is stingy, that it's not quite enough for us that the gate or the door is narrow because he wants to keep people out. But he is saying that the way of Jesus is difficult. The Christian life is hard. Sometimes in American evangelicalism, we can sort of sell Christianity like it's a timeshare in the Bahamas or something. We can say um, in subtle ways, this isn't always stated, that Jesus will make all your dreams come true if you're just faithful enough. Or that your kids will be well-adjusted, and we have a guarantee on that. 
Or um, that here are five steps towards spiritual bliss and constant spiritual fulfillment. Or sometimes you'll hear, okay, we admit the Christian life is hard, but it will be easy if you just buy my book or come to my conference. But when we look at Jesus, we see such a different way. Jesus, in many, many ways, was just a horrible salesman. He never tried to make life with him look like a pleasure cruise. He talks about taking up crosses and dying to self. And here he says, struggle, struggle hard, because the life that I'm calling you to is difficult. It's a narrow way. And we remember Sophie Scholl that sometimes following Jesus means actual death. And we have brothers and sisters that are facing that around the world. Grace that we receive as believers is absolutely transformative, but it does not make life or Christianity a piece of cake. It doesn't make us endlessly and constantly fulfilled. Grace makes us alive, fully alive, alive to joy and alive to sorrow. Grace sets us free. The Christian life is always a struggle. Grace allows us to know God, to know God himself, and because of that, there's amazing joy, and we can learn to endure the struggle. At times, we even learn to kind of relish and enjoy the struggle, but it's always a struggle. Further down in this passage that we read this morning, Jesus is saying to the people of Israel, look, you have killed the prophets, and I am here now, and this is the moment of your salvation. Jesus is saying God isn't sending anyone else. This is it. I am the one who is sent. I, Jesus, am the narrow way. And God is saying these people who you think are the last the Gentiles, the outsiders, the irreligious in your eyes, some of them will be first. And those who seem most put together, who heap up righteous deeds, some of them will be last. Because Jesus is the narrow way. He is the only way of salvation. And he right again, says this passage shows that it really is possible it's possible to stroll past the open gate of the kingdom of God. This is a difficult way. And people can miss it or reject it or walk away from it. But I want you to notice here, it's important to me that you notice, that the gate or the door, is not narrow because God is trying to keep out the crowds, to keep out the riffraff. It's not that God is this exacting or angry God, because directly after this warning about the narrow gate, the narrow way, we see the next passage 
One of the most tender, kindest, gentlest pictures of Jesus. He's weeping over Jerusalem, and he says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? What a beautiful picture of Jesus, this hen gathering her brood under his wings, her wings. It's a, it's a picture of even the maternal nature of the love of God, this gentle, kind, tender, loving, protecting of children. And I always saw this as a picture of tenderness and love, um, but in, in reading this, and studying it a little bit, I realized there's a little more going on here than I realized. It's not just Jesus kind of gathering us under his wings, like, you know, cuddling. Um, when, and I didn't know this because I'm a city kid, but when um, chickens face danger, when there's a fire, for instance, in a farmyard, or when there's a predator, like a fox, which is named in this passage, Jesus calls Herod a fox, a mother hen will shield her chicks with her body so that they will be safe, even if it means that she has to bear the brunt of the danger on herself, even if it endangers her more. And there's been uh, multiple times in farmyard fires where mother hens have been found dead, burned, and their babies are alive and well under their wings, protected. On the internet, there's this video that's been watched thousands of times, I'm assuming by very tired mothers, of this mother hen protecting her chicks in the rain. And it's this monsoon, and there's this hen, and she's soaking wet, just absolutely wet and looking very miserable. But out of this kind of fierce love, she's standing in the rain, and her chicks are tucked underneath her just happily, happily dry. And you just see their little, their little legs kind of dancing underneath her. And um, it's, it's been watched over and over again, and the, the caption of the video says something like, this sums up motherhood. Um, and Jesus is saying, that's how I love you. I love you like that. I long to gather you under my wings, even if it means that I bear the brunt of the danger. He's saying, I want to shield you. I will give my very life to preserve yours. This image speaks not only of God's feelings of love and tenderness and gentleness towards us, but as of the sacrifice of Jesus. The scriptures say, I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And, and these are some of the saddest words in all of scripture, you were not willing. The gate is narrow. The way is narrow. Not because God wants to keep any of us out, but because we are so often not willing to be gathered in. God never rejects us, but in humility, he allows himself to be rejected. He allows us to walk away. And so often it feels easier to do so. It feels like less of a struggle to walk away, to just sort of give up, 
the struggle. We can be like chicks, just sort of running as fast as we can out from under our mother's wings. But the hope that we have is that God's mercy in Jesus is enough for us. And his love for us is lavish. It's more than we could imagine. Sophie Scholl was convicted with her brother, and she faced execution by guillotine at 21, February 22nd. She and her brother Hans faced their execution, and they only had moments to say goodbye to their parents. And I'm going to just read you what I came across in my research. Grasping at something, anything to comfort her daughter in this heart-rending farewell, their mother, Magdalene, said, Remember, Sophie, Jesus. Remember, Sophie, Jesus. To which Sophie replied, Yes, but you must remember Jesus too. This morning, as citizens of heaven, we take up practices that allow us to remember and to hold to Jesus. In our longing and homesickness for heaven, we remember that we are waiting for Jesus. We are homesick for the one who by the power that enables him to bring everything everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. And when we struggle, when the Christian life is hard, when you struggle with doubt, when you grieve, we look not to our own efforts to keep us on this narrow road, but we look to the mercy and grace and power of Jesus. We remember that Jesus is the way and the door and the gate. You, citizens of heaven, that's what we are. Citizens of heaven, as you come this morning and we take a meal together, we take the Eucharist together, we are practicing heaven in an ordinary way. We're practicing the worship of Jesus that will be eternal, that is happening in heaven right now. We are looking at this little picture together in this meal of our true home, this imperfect and incomplete snapshot of our true home. And we together are struggling in so many ways to remember Jesus Citizens of heaven, this morning, let us come together and remember Jesus together again. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.